Hi everyone, this is Garrett Marquis, Global Head of External Communications here at BNY Mellon. Welcome back for another episode of our BNY Mellon Perspectives podcast. Today, we have two Wall Street veterans and prominent leaders of the financial industry. Robin Vince, our Vice Chair and CEO of Global Market Infrastructure, and Dr. William C. Dudley. Now, Bill Dudley has held leadership positions in both the private and public sectors. He's one of the United States' most respected economists. After two decades at another global financial institution, he joined the New York Federal Reserve in 2007. In early 2009, a very precarious time in the markets, at the height of the financial crisis, Bill was appointed president, and he was really responsible for helping set policies to get us out of the crisis and better prepare our financial system for future events that shape markets. Of course, we saw that future event break out before our eyes in 2020 with COVID-19 pandemic and subsequent economic and financial crisis. Bill takes us behind the scenes of what went wrong, what went right, and what was surprising last year through the lens of that prior crisis. He and Robin also take us through a number of macro and economic trends and Fed policy decisions. Bill gives his views on tapering, which is a top of mind item for industry participants, inflation, and dysfunction in the U.S. Treasury and money market mutual funds. And he even gives us a preview of reforms you'd like to see to make our system as resilient and robust as it can be. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation between Bill Dudley and Robin Vince. I think today's discussion is topical for anyone interested in the immediate and long-term futures of capital markets. As always, please listen, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. See you at the next episode. Bill, uh, we're delighted to have you join us today for this episode of BNY Mellon Perspectives. Um, you and I have known each other for many years. Uh, we both worked at another global financial institution in a past life, but you've had a whole breadth of experience in the private and public sectors throughout your career. So maybe we could start there a little bit. I'd love to set the scene with that. Uh, you joined the New York Federal Reserve in 2007. Uh, you became its president in January 2009, and you served in that role for almost a decade. So before we dive in, maybe you could recap that history for us. What came before landing at the Fed? And give us your quick backstory as well. Well, I went to Berkeley uh, graduate school, got a PhD in economics in microeconomics. Um, I got uh, I took one course in graduate school in macro uh, from uh, George Akerlof, who's uh, Janet Yellen's uh, uh, husband, and I got a B in it. So the, I got a, you know A's in everything else. So uh, it didn't foreshadow the uh, macroeconomics or orientation later in my career. Uh, but uh, when Goldman Sachs hired me. Uh, uh, they were interested in my experience uh, in terms of bank regulation and knowledgeable about, you know, how the, all the plumbing works. Uh, and so that's how I sort of switched gears and moved from regulatory policy to macro. And I worked at Goldman for 20 years. And I left like a lot of people uh, leave Goldman. Uh, there was no job I wanted that they would give me. I had been in the same job for 10 years and it was time for a change. And so I announced my retirement at the end of 2005 and spent 2006 uh, helping Jan Hatzius uh, get, off, get off to a good start. Um, I didn't really know what was going to be next. And uh, what happened was Tim Geithner uh, called me up on the phone uh, uh, sometime in early 2006 and said, you want to come over and be my advisor? And I said, I'd love to advise you, Tim, but what do I do for the rest of my 40 hours or 50 hour work weeks? And he didn't have a good answer to that. So, so I declined. 
called me back a few months later and said, well, how about running the markets group? Uh, the markets group basically is the group at the New York Fed that implements monetary policy on behalf of the Federal Reserve System. And that struck me as a real job. Uh, and so it didn't take me long to decide that that was really uh, something worth, uh, worth undertaking. And then, of course, when Tim uh, got kicked upstairs, became the Secretary of the Treasury, not something I was expecting. I was sort of at the right place at the right time in the middle of a financial crisis. It wasn't really a great time to bring someone from the outside to the New York Fed. And so I got the uh, opportunity to be president of the New York Fed, but a huge amount of luck involved in, 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 that, uh, in that career path. So, so maybe we could pick up the story right there at the time that you uh, took on the role of president. I mean, you know, we've just commemorated the 20 year anniversary of 9-11. That certainly led to a heightened sense of reflection on lots of things for me. And I expect some of our other listeners as well and clearly that tragedy that day had an enormous human impact, but it also had a big impact on global markets. And then during the years after that, we saw a variety of different interrelated forces, which really brought us to the recession of 2008. So maybe, you know, you could pick up the story there. You were at the New York Fed. You were in the top job there. Really through the financial crisis, but very much uh, at the peak with taking that role of the, the the presidency of that organization. Take us back in time. You know, the country had just inaugurated a new president. There was so much uncertainty in financial markets. We still hadn't seen the bottom of the stock market. What was it like inside the financial system HQ? What was happening? Well, obviously, the first part of 2009, new team at the White House. It takes some time to get up to speed. Economy is still uh, headed south. The unemployment rate's climbing, and financial markets are still under a tremendous amount of uh, distress. To me, the turning point uh, was the famous uh, uh, stress tests that were applied to banks, where the where banks were basically uh, stressed, and uh, the, the the TARP money was used to ensure that the banks had enough capital to withstand a very bad inverse environment. When the public, when the Fed published the results of the stress tests and the amount of capital that the major firms needed to raise either uh, in the markets or to come from the government. Uh, I remember the next day that, you know, the, 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 the reaction of the private sector was overwhelmingly positive that the stress tests were credible. Uh, people were now confident that the capital was going to go into the banking system. And that really was uh, the turning point in the spring of, of 2009. And after that, things gradually got better. So, you know, we've seen recently, we're 18 months into the pandemic, unfortunately not over yet. Um, maybe we could just pivot a second and talk about this crisis a little bit through that lens uh, of 2008 and 2009. We've seen some of the same tools come out of the toolkit uh, that were used back in the day. Um, you know, how did those policies that were enacted more than a decade prior inform the response to what happened last year in 2020? You know, what, what, surprised you? What should have surprised us? What should not have surprised us? Maybe talk a little bit about some of those tools and how you think about what happened more recently. Well, I think that it was very fortunate that the Fed had these tools uh, on the shelf. I mean, the problem in 2007 is almost all these special liquidity facilities hadn't been developed. Uh, no one knew how they were actually going to work in, in terms of the, the plumbing and whether they'd actually be uh, effective. Uh, they worked quite well in 2008 and into 2009. And so when uh, the, the pandemic hit, uh, 
uh, the Fed had a whole set of tools that it could just take down uh, uh, from the shelf and, and, and put into place very, very quickly. The other thing I think that was important is that market participants knew that these tools would work. And so just the f- very fact that the Fed was announcing that it was going to move aggressively in last March, in uh, March of 2020, uh, I think people, that was reassuring uh, to, to, to confidence. So the other thing I think that was very important is that we basically made the banking system much more robust to stress uh, post uh, the, the great financial crisis. The capital, liquidity requirements, et cetera, were uh, increased significantly. And you know, one thing that we really passed with flying colors, I think, in, the, in this last crisis is that the banking system came through in, in very good shape. I think that's what you mentioned earlier on in the context of the financial crisis itself, the creation of the stress tests, uh, and, and, and then you just touched there on the capital and liquidity, you know, regulation and some of those, those uh, processes, they can sometimes be quite contentious in the marketplace, but, you know, they've, they've clearly served in many respects. They've served us very well. Maybe just touch a little bit on how important you think that combination of stress tests, capital in the system, and focus on liquidity have actually been? Because it seems to me that they were very important to not having a repeat of 2008, nine when we had this pandemic. But you know, wh- where do you sit on that? Well, obviously, you know, bank bankers generally would have prefer to have less capital requirements, less liquidity requirements, because those things you know, do exert a cost and, that, and it does show up in reduced prof, profitability and a lower return on, 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 on equity. But you have to judge, you know, a, a bank's performance, not in the peak of the cycle, but through the cycle. And I think those higher capital and liquidity requirements have actually, you know, stood the banking system in quite good stead to withstand stress and, and cause, cause bank counterparties to be comfortable, continue to deal with banks. I mean, the problem with, that we had in 2008 is that people panicked. They basically ran away from the banking system. It wasn't just an investment banking problem. It was a much broader problem, in part because of inadequate capital in the banking system. So maybe we can just take that and evolve it a little bit. I'd, I'd love to talk about stresses on the system that were a little bit more specific to this most recent event. You know, the pandemic imposed a whole bunch of additional stress on institutions. Everything had to go remote which was a different experience, of course, than we'd had before. We all had to adapt. It was virtually overnight. It, give me a sense of how um, the financial services industry and banks, including BNY Mellon, uh, responded uh, to that and what your assessment of that has been with your background looking kind of from your, your external vantage point at this moment. Well, I think generally the system performed uh, quite well, although I have to say the non-bank financial portion of the system uh, had the greatest amount of difficulties. We had runs, again, on money market mutual funds. We thought we had fixed the money market uh, fund industry by two reforms that were uh, enacted in the prior decade, but obviously that wasn't sufficient. Uh, we also, I think the other big surprise was all the uh, stress in the U.S. Treasury market. Typically, when we are going into a big financial shock, uh, there's a flight to treasuries. But in March of 2020, for a little while, there's actually people trying to convert treasuries into cash, and they were sort of overwhelming the ca- capacity of the system uh, to fund those, those, those treasury securities. So that's a, a huge, that was a huge, I think, surprise to, to people in financial markets and, uh, and policymakers. And so a lot of things are in, underway now to make sure that we don't uh, ever repeat that episode. 
The other thing I think, the other episode, lesson of the financial crisis is that we still don't have our hands around regulating the non-bank financial sector. You know, if you think about the Dodd-Frank Act, they established the Financial Stability Oversight Council to sort of, you know, deal with problems outside of the core banking system. I think it's not been very effective. So let's uh, let's pick up on both of those things. I mean, you mentioned the U.S. Treasury markets. Clearly, there was disruption in those markets, but it's not the first time in recent years that we've seen it. We saw sort of a repo market spike of sorts in September of 2019. Uh, and then we had the the significant sell-off that you were just describing uh, in March of 2020. That's led, as it should, to a debate around whether we need additional reforms. You know, what else can we do? It, maybe I just ask you the simple question, and this is a very important thing given what's going on with the additional debt that the U.S. Treasury is raising. Is the U.S. Treasury market resilient? I think it you know, can be resilient, but I think we need more uh, tools. Uh, one tool I think is uh, the Fed has already announced a standing repo facility uh, to backstop the treasury market. I think it would be better if it were bigger, uh, unlimited in size. And I think it would be better if it was broader, uh, not just opened up to regulated institutions, but available more broadly. But we're making progress on that score. The other area where I think we really do need to address is provide more uh, scope for uh, primary dealers and, and, and commercial banks to take treasuries on their balance sheet during times of stress. Uh, as you know, the, the capital regime includes what's called the supplemental leverage ratio, uh, which treats treasuries just the same as you know, commercial loans and more, more risky assets. And so what we saw in the spring of 2020, it wasn't just the fact that there wasn't this Federal Reserve backstop to the treasury market it was also because the supplemental leverage ratio was becoming more binding. Uh, so I think doing something there that treats treasuries a bit differently to, re to reflect the fact that they truly are safe assets could help uh, expand the capacity of the treasury market during times of stress. So that's just going back to the events. That's Is it as simple as there weren't enough buyers for sellers at the moment? I think that a lot of people in, the, in March of 2020 wanted to change, you know, exchange their treasuries into cash. And, you know, at first, nothing particularly horrible happened. But as that, as that got underway in earnest, the, tre the treasury market itself started to behave poorly, which just reinforced the incentives to turn treasuries into cash. You know, if you have a, uh, if the Fed has a standing uh, repo facility that, basically is open to a broad set of comers without uh, uh, with unlimited capacity, I think that would minimize the flight to cash because people would be reassured that they don't have to panic. And number two, it would, it would limit how high repo rates can get uh, as people are having trouble refinancing treasuries in the marketplace. So that's the cost of being the deepest and most liquid market in the world is that actually Sometimes that really comes to the reality of people need to raise their liquidity. Um, you touched on another dysfunction, which I'd love to, to touch on a little bit more, which is the stress in the money market, mutual funds. Um, you alluded to it. There have been several rounds of reforms globally trying to strengthen that market. It clearly went through a lot of stress in 2008. We saw different things happening in 2020. Uh, I'm an old money markets guy, so I have a little bit of special affection for this market. But you alluded to the fact that maybe we haven't gotten this completely right. Could you just touch on that a little bit more? What What do you think 
is the issue and what do you think we maybe should consider doing as a financial services industry in this space? Well, I think the problems that you saw in money market mutual funds in the spring of 2020 was really due to the fact that we didn't get the incentives right. So we established these liquidity requirements for, 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 for money market mutual funds, a buffer. Uh, and we basically said that uh, if the buffer is penetrated, if you go below the buffer, uh, then the money market mutual fund has the option of putting up uh, redemption gates. Uh, that led to two uh, perverse uh, outcomes in terms of behavior. Uh, number one, money market mutual funds didn't want to use their liquidity buffer um, because they were worried about what would happen if they started to contemplate putting up their gates. So the liquidity buffers were basically not really available. So they actually had to sell assets uh, rather than use their liquidity buffers, which obviously increased the stress in the market. And the second perverse incentive that developed from that was that people rushed to the money market funds to get their money out before the liquidity buffers were pierced because they were worried that the gate, the redemption gates might go up if the, if the money market funds fell below those limits. So if you get the incentives wrong, you're going to get the behavior that you don't uh, uh, like. Uh, and I think those, that, that, that's the core issue that needs to be addressed in terms of money market fund reform. It's interesting both in your treasury example and also in your U.S. Treasury's example and in your money market funds example, it's essentially the perils of pro-cyclicality in terms of the behaviors uh, is the common denominator there. All right. Um, you, you talked about being a, a, an economist. That was that was the beginning uh, uh, where you started and where you spend still to this day the longest single chapter of your career uh, practicing uh, sort of the macroeconomic uh, policy and really, really looking at that. Let's let's talk about that for a second. You know, the Fed has just convened and in, in Jackson Hole not that long ago. Um, we've been talking about tapering now for a few months. There are sort of, of course, uh, sending out a variety of different messages around exactly the, the 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 timing of that. It's sort of talking about talking about tapering. It's probably still the phase that we're we're in right now. Uh, the Euro European Central Bank is in a not dissimilar uh, position in terms of needing to comp contemplate all of this. You know, for, for our listeners here, some of whom may not know what tapering is, could you please just give us a little brief explanation of that and then maybe talk a little bit about the importance of that decision and the timing and your own thoughts about the pace here? So. The Fed currently is buying, as you know, $80 billion of treasuries uh, a month and $40 billion of agency mortgage-backed securities a month. Uh, by buying these securities, uh, the Fed is essentially putting downward pressure on long-term interest rates, which is providing support to financial conditions and there to, therefore to the economy. But as the economy is, is starting to recover from the pandemic and as inflation is surprised on the upside, the idea of continuing to add more and more accommodations seems you know, inappropriate. And so the Fed needs to sort of back out of this period of, of, of quantitative easing. Uh, and the taper is basically the notion of how they do that. They don't just stop. They don't go from 80 billion a month to zero in, in, you know, instantaneously. They gradually reduce the 80 billion to 70 billion the next month, 60 billion the next month, and so on. So after, you know, eight, eight months or so, you go from 80 billion to zero. And that's probably what's going to happen. I think at you know with September FOMC meeting, the Fed is almost certainly going to signal that they're even closer uh, to tapering. And I think the general perception right now is the taper process is likely to begin in November. Uh, and if they take it down 10 billion a month, 
for treasuries and $5 billion a month for agency mortgage-backed securities. Uh, they'll be finished with a taper by the middle of next year. Now, the reason why you know ending the taper is important is that the Fed is, I think the general view is the Fed isn't going to raise short-term rates until they stop buying securities because it, it, otherwise it makes no sense. Uh, if you're you're buying securities, you're you're adding stimulus. If you're raising short-term interest rates, you're removing stimulus. So it doesn't make sense to do both at the same time. So the pressure, you know, on the side of the people who are more hawkish about monetary policy is let's get the taper done relatively early, because there is a possibility that we might want to tighten monetary policy in the second half of 2022, and it'll be difficult to do that if we're still buying to treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Are they going quickly enough? Well, we'll see. I mean, you know, it obviously depends on how the economy evolves. I mean, I think the, the biggest risk right now is that uh, inflation is higher, uh, higher for longer. And it may be true that a lot of the components of that are pushing inflation right up might not right now might be transitory. But it's possible that, you know, a long period of transitory inflation could cause inflation expectations to start to climb. And that would make inflation more persistent. Sort of interesting uh, very recently, the New York Fed published uh, their most recent reading on household expectations of inflation, and it hit the highest readings for both one-year inflation expectations and three-year inflation expectations in the history of this uh, survey that goes back to 2013. So, you know, inflation expectations look like they're starting to become unanchored a little bit, uh, and that's problematic for inflation because if people think inflation is going to be higher in the future, uh, they're more willing to pay out higher wages. Um, and that causes the inflation process to be sort of self-fulfilling in some sense. So, so you lo- alluded to it just then, and you know, I've read some of the things that you've been talking about related to inflation, but yet you've also worked inside the Fed. So you probably have a good vantage point in terms of, you know, is the Fed all-knowing? When you, when you look at that institution and you look at the people and, you know, there's certainly a school of thought out there that says they have access to way more information. They have way more insight. Let's just trust in the Fed. Uh, you know, how worried should we be? Well, I think that uh, we, we should be worried in the sense that uh, the uncertainty level is extraordinarily high. Uh, we don't have any experience with economies going through pandemics. We don't have a lot of experience with economies coming out of pandemics uh, with a lot of fiscal policy stimulus. Um, I think the Fed has a lot of expertise, and I think that means that they, you know, get things in the small very, very well. I mean, they they probably have better people to think about what the next uh, consumer price index report is going to be than anybody uh, in the world. But as we saw with the uh, with the great financial crisis, the Federal Reserve doesn't always get the the big picture right, and so I think there is some risk here uh, in terms of the economic outlook. And I think the you know the Fed policymakers like Chair Powell will be the first to admit that the level of uncertainty right now is very high. One of the things that you know you've noted previously uh, is that real yields are still shockingly low, uh, despite what we've seen in the stock market, despite the economic recovery seemingly ticking up. Obviously, we still have COVID to contend with. Um, we've got the interesting statistics around the job market and the fears of inflation that you've just talking been talking about. You know, what are the indicators that you watch? Help, help us sort of decode a little bit these seemingly conflicting signals. Well, I can't really decode it because I don't completely understand where 10-year Treasury yields are right now and where 
the market in terms of the expected future path of short-term rates. If you look at the Eurodollar futures market, which extends out you know, to 2025-26, you know, the peak in short-term rates, according to that market, is only around one and three quarters percent. That seems awfully low in an environment where the Federal Reserve wants to see inflation above 2%. Uh, so if you sort of think the Fed's going to achieve inflation above 2%, uh, and then it's going to have to move to a tight monetary policy regime relative to that. Uh, that seems like a peak in short-term rates well above uh, 2%. Uh, so it's a little surprising right now to understand what's going on in financial markets. One explanation is quantitative easing. The fact is the Fed's buying a lot of long-term assets, uh, and that's pushing people to take on more risk elsewhere. And that may be the thing that's sort of pushing down long-term yields. But obviously, as the Fed pulls back from quantitative easing, as, as they go through the taper, uh, maybe that support for the Treasury market uh, and for these expectations of very low yields, maybe that starts to go away. So, Bill, maybe we could pivot for a second to digital assets and, and innovation. Um, different topic, one that I know you care a lot about as well. Um, I, I remember going to visit the Fed the U.S. Treasury maybe 20 years or so ago, uh, I certainly had the sense that they were really the stewards of the financial system. And one person's view, it feels to me that over the course of the past decade or two, they've really had to double down on their monetary policy and regulatory mandates. Those are incredibly important. But this sense of helping to facilitate, encourage, steer the U.S. financial system along the innovation track maintaining its role as being the greatest in the world feels that it may have taken a backseat to to those other two things, notwithstanding that they're very important. Is that just me being nostalgic? Does any of that resonate with you at all? A little bit. I mean, in the sense that I think, you know, monetary policy is job one and financial stability is a very important component of that. So that, you know, leads to the focus on regulation and, and, and bank supervision. And maybe payments, you know, are coming in uh, you know, in third place. Um, but, you know, that said, the Fed, it does have some important initiatives underway in terms of payments. For example, the Fed's moving towards the Fed now, which is going to hopefully lead to 24-hour, seven days, real-time payments for retail for retail customers. I think where, where, where I think you're right that the Fed has been quite slow is, you know, writing down what the ground rules are for, um, you know, digital currencies, uh, regulating stable coins, uh, really bringing the whole cryptocurrency, stablecoin uh, ecosystem under some sort of regulation and set of rules that, you know, that right now it sort of operates outside of the Federal Reserve, outside of the U.S. Uh, uh, regulatory system. And, you know, it's getting pretty big. And so at, at this point, you start to wonder, well, like, is, are we actually creating some risk here? Uh, stablecoins are a good example. Stablecoins, uh, you know, if they're 100% backed by Federal you know, cash at the Federal Reserve, I don't worry about stablecoins at all. But some of the leading stable coins are backed, stopped by things like commercial paper. Um, the disclosure is not very good. Uh, you know, you could imagine at some point a run on stable coins um, and the stable coins having trouble honoring their, those runs because just like money market mutual funds, it's hard to turn uh, financial assets into cash uh, instantaneously. Maybe you could also talk to us about the CBDCs, the central bank digital currencies, you know, do you think in the light of your comments about the private sector coins, if I could refer to those other two categories in that way, do you think we need a U.S. 
central bank digital currency? I, th- I mean, I think we'll have one at some point, whether we, you know, it's absolutely essential. I'm, I, I'm not really certain. I think what, what, what I am certain about is we need to bring all these innovations in, under some sort of umbrella of, of supervision and regulation so we don't have a big accident as, as this sector gets bigger uh, and bigger. Uh, look, I think central bank digital currencies make a lot of sense. I mean, there's no reason why you can't take, you know, a, a dollar and turn it into a, you know, a digital obliga- obligation rather than a paper obligation. I think the big uh, issue here is, you know, how big is the role uh, of the central bank? Does the Fed uh, offer digital accounts to all its citizens, or does the Fed just stand as an intermediary to the banking system, and the banking system offers the digital currencies on to the end end customers? I think the Fed is probably reluctant to be sort of the banker to, you know, the entire, uh, you know, United States uh, citizenry. But I think that their, their role will probably be more limited than that. But this all needs to be worked out. And I, and I think it needs to be worked out relatively quickly because, as you know, uh, the growth rate of stable coins and cryptocurrencies has been very, very rapid over the last few years. So we're not talking about a sector that's uh, very small anymore. And you know, I th- and I don't think I don't think people who are who are uh, you know operating that sector uh, necessarily understand all the risks that that are actually out there. I don't know if you've spent uh, much time on decentralized finance. I mean, I think about the broad world of digital assets as sort of four buckets: uh, cryptos. We talk a lot about it; they get a disproportionate amount of the attention, probably. Second, we just talked about stable coins. Uh, tokenized assets is very interesting as well as a third category. But but that fourth one, decentralized finance, seems to me to be an area where there's just a lot of opportunity and a lot of potential for real disruption in the financial services industry. And it's a set of new capabilities that many fintechs are uh, are expecting to be able to ride to very significant market uh, prominence uh, in the future. Um, could you just touch on some of your thoughts on that? How dis- is is this a a little sideshow? But the banking system is going to remain relatively unchanged, or do you see a, a much bigger sweeping change to come over the years ahead from decentralized finance? I, I, the honest answer is I don't know, but I do think there re- there really is a potential for you know, pretty large disruption because uh, the pace of innovation is much faster. Uh, things can be, you know, divided into, you know, different, uh, you know, use, you know, functions and uses. I remember uh, 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 I had a account, a checking account and a savings account at a major U.S. bank, um, and it turned out I wanted to move money from my checking account to a certificate of deposit at the same bank. It took me 45 minutes. Uh, sitting next to the banker to effectuate that change, uh, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, so that suggests that there's plenty of room for for innovation to come in and 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 you know make your your customer experience more more pleasant. So, Bill, maybe I could just finish with a with a, a broader perspective from you. You're a professional warrior. You can't have been in the businesses that you're in without being. I've been a chief risk officer, so. That qualifies as a professional warrior as well. You know, what else is on your list of concerns and worries right now for the financial system? Well, I do worry a lot about, uh, you know, the bond market and the low level of bond yields and, you know, the essential 
consequence of that of people stretching for yield for returns elsewhere. So if you look at, you know, if you look at high yield debt, if you look at the stock market, I think all these things are really the consequence of 10 year treasury yields, you know, at, at currently around 1.3%. So I worry about what happens if, you know, the Fed gets behind the curve, inflation becomes more of a problem, the Fed has to stand on the brakes a little bit harder. And if market participants lose confidence in the Fed, uh, you know, for the last 10 years, we've been talking about the low level of bond term premium. In other words, you don't have to, you don't get, retru- you, don't, you don't get compensation for holding a long dated asset uh, relative to a series of short dated assets. People have actually been holding bonds as a hedge against bad economic uh, uh, outcomes like economic downturns. That could change a lot. And so I guess I really worry about the bond market. And if the bond market were to, to have a you know, significant problem, uh, it's hard to believe that that wouldn't have ripple effects to high-yield debt and also to the U.S. stock market. Bill, all too fascinating. I mean, I could do this for hours, but I have to thank you very much indeed for being with us uh, today for this uh, for this edition of BNY Mellon Perspectives. So thank you very much on behalf of myself and our listeners. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hey, everyone. Garrett here again. Thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. As I said at the top, keep listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Most importantly, and if you're willing, leave a review or rating and tell us your feedback. You can find us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and of course, bnymellon.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you at the next episode.